All right, well, title of the message is The Big Reveal. Start off by asking, how many of you like surprises? How many of you like being surprised? Okay, got a few, got a few. And I'm not talking about like little random surprises like, you know, somebody bought you a box of chocolates or something like that. I'm talking like big, like surprise birthday parties that take a coordinated effort of like 20 or more people to pull off, right? And secret emails and all these things that need to happen for somebody not to figure out what's going on. Um, I've done this to Lindsay a couple times and she uh, maybe was a fan at one point, but now the message is... um, don't surprise me anymore. Please uh, just let me know if something's going to happen. But she pulled off a pretty good surprise birthday party for me when we were in China. It was my 30th birthday. I was at work, and one of my coworkers was like, hey, I got this big uh, hutch, I guess. I don't know. I'm thinking of the Chinese word. Uh, like a hutch that we got to move in my apartment. It's like the middle of the day, and I'm, it was like around lunchtime. And I'm like, why do we need to do this right now? He's like, well, it's really important. you know. And I'm just clueless and, you know, get to his apartment to move this hutch and open the door and like all these people are inside. So it's fun to be surprised, right? It's fun to be the recipient of that. It's fun to be in on the surprise, uh, scheming and trying to, trying to keep things a secret. Well, today we're going to see a big surprise. Uh, it's not a, not a surprise party, but it is a big surprise. And it's a continuation of coordinated, coordinated, coordinated efforts involving Joseph and his brothers. Joseph has been at work coordinating this big reveal, this big surprise. And if you've read the Bible, uh, you know the Bible is full of surprises. There's things that shock us, like the, the text we just read. That's, that's surprising. We've seen things in Genesis that have been very surprising to us. We saw Judah in chapter 38 and the whole fiasco with him and his daughter-in-law and children being born and knowing that Judah is the promised one, right? Judah Judah is the chosen son of that line and the Messiah is going to come through Judah. That's a surprise to us. We, We hear that and we're like, that doesn't really make any sense. Or how can this dysfunctional family that we've been looking at for the past several months, how can they be the recipients and the passers-on of God's promises? Like, this is weird, right? It's, it's shocking to us. It doesn't make sense in human terms. We might ask ourselves, like this family, when we're confronted with our own sin, when we're confronted with the dysfunction in our own lives, in our own families, especially at Christmas time, we're probably confronted with those even more. How can I be used by God when I've messed up so much? How can I be used by God when I've sinned and I've turned my back on him? How can he still love me? How can he still fulfill his promises in my life when I have done what I have done? If you're taking notes this morning, Kind of the big idea is that God's faithful fulfillment of his covenant promises does not depend upon us and our faithfulness. God's faithful fulfillment of his covenant promises does not depend upon us and our faithfulness. And we're really going to see that in our passage this morning. Uh, if you haven't been with us lately, we've been in, in Genesis, kind of in the late 30s and, and early to mid 40 chapters there. This is part two of a, of a three-part drama of a reunion between Jacob and his sons and the brothers, okay? Joseph and his brothers and their father, Jacob. 
Last week, the brothers, we saw them go down into Egypt to buy grain. Jacob told them to go down so that they would live and not die because of the famine that was going out over the whole land. And they get there and Joseph recognizes them and he puts them to a test to see first really like where is Benjamin, the the younger brother, because they all go down except Benjamin, who is Joseph's full brother by blood, by the same father and mother. And then he wants to know, is, is dad alive? Like, have you guys killed my brother and have you just let dad, you know, rot or whatever? He didn't trust them. So he, he tells them, send one of you back. The rest of you stay. Send one of you back, which they didn't end up doing. They ended up leaving one. They left Simeon, and they all went back to bring this, the things back. They get busted with money. Um, they, conf- they confess their guilt before Joseph. They get busted with money in their sacks, and they're afraid. Jacob, they get home. Jacob's like, no way am I sending Benjamin down. Simeon's, he says, Simeon is dead, even though he's alive down in Egypt. He thinks Joseph is dead. And then Judah said, Judah steps in, you remember, and says, Dad, we're not going back down without Benjamin. If we don't go without Benjamin, we're toast. We have to bring him back down. So they go back down. They double the, they double the money in the sacks that was planted there. Uh, they bring a whole bunch of gifts, and they are afraid they go back down, Jacob, or Joseph greets them and ends up with this huge feast in Joseph's house and Benjamin gets five times the amount of food that everybody else gets. And, but they still don't know who Joseph is. That's kind of how last week ended. So now we come to chapter 44. We're going to be looking at chapter 44 and 45 today. Uh, we're not going to read chapter 44. I'm just going to kind of narrate it a little bit. Um, and then we will read through chapter 45 in sections and then look at it as we go. The first thing we see here is that the testing intensifies. Joseph's testing of his brothers is going to intensify. Now he's sending them back home, and we're not told exactly why, but we are let in on a secret that there is another test here. He puts money, he puts the money back in their sacks again, and then he puts his own silver cup in Benjamin's sack. He puts his silver cup in Benjamin, his his full brother, he puts the cup in his sack. They head out in the morning. They get a little ways out of the city when Joseph's posse comes and catches up to them. And they got to be thinking, now what? <laughs> right? What did we do now? We're like, we're on our way home. We're going back with this food. Everybody's here. We're about to be safe back home. What now? And then Joseph's steward catches up to them. Listen to what he says. Why have you repaid evil for good? Why have you repaid evil for good? Basically, Joseph is saying, it was in my power to take you guys out. I graciously provided, I housed you, right? I fed you, I gave you all these things. And this is how you repay me? Well, this statement here, why have you repaid evil for good, is a foreshadowing of what we're about to see at the end of the book. And this is really kind of the main theme of the Joseph story, which unfolds in chapter 50. We've mentioned this already a few times as we've gone along. In chapter 50, after Jacob, their father, dies, the brothers are afraid, and they send a message to Joseph, asking him for forgiveness for all the evil that they have done to him. And this is how Joseph responds. He says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for your little ones. Now keep in mind, that all happens after everything we're going to see today. There's still this drama going on between the brothers. But Joseph is going to remind them that they meant evil, but God meant it for good. So we read this here, why have you repaid evil for good? Knowing the end, knowing that it's all part of God's plan. And I think this should give us great comfort in our lives when we are in the middle of the story. When we are in the middle of the story and we don't exactly know how things are going to end, right? We don't know how things are going to work out. Things, things seem hard, right? We might feel like the brothers, like we've just been tracked down and busted and accused of all these things. And we are in the middle of the story. But God has already written the ending. He's already written the ending of your story. He knows what's going to happen. The future is not just like, well, let's just see what happens, right? God knows. He's good. He's in control. He knows how your story and my story is going to play out. So the same message that Joseph tells his brothers, we need to hear. Do not fear. Okay, do not be afraid. God is in control. And you might not see how there's any way that the story can end end well where you're at right now. But do not fear. So they're busted here. Quite logically, the brothers defend themselves, right? They're like, hey, we've already been caught with money that's not ours. The steward, who they're speaking with, he told them that God put it there. They returned that money and doubled it. Why on earth would they steal Joseph's silver cup? Like, it makes no sense. So they're, they're like, hey, we're good, right? So they make this foolish vow. They say, whoever has the cup is a dead man. If you find the cup in one of our sacks, kill that guy and all the rest of us will go back and we'll be your servants for life. So they're pretty confident, right? They're pretty confident that they don't have this silver cup. They go through the sacks. The steward goes through the sacks from the oldest to the the youngest. By the time they get to Benjamin, they got to be thinking, okay, we're, we're good, right? But then there it is. And their first thought is probably, Benjamin, what are you doing? You fool, like, now we're, you're dead and we're going to be servants for the rest of our lives. What were you thinking? But then after they settled down, they, th- they probably thought, wait a minute. Did God put that cup in there? Is God testing us? Is God punishing us for what we did to our brother? Is this how it's going to end for us? What kind of sick joke is this? They come back and they fall to the ground before Joseph. Again, this is a picture of the fulfillment of the dream of them bowing down. And this word here for fall is different than the word that was used to bow down. This is actually a stronger Hebrew word. This is a full submission, them falling down like as his slaves. They confess their guilt again. They say that God has found out the guilt of your servants And then Joseph demands that Benjamin stay and the rest of them return to their father in peace. Again, it's our word shalom that we've been looking at. Return to your father in peace. And Judah steps in. And Judah's going to have this long speech here. It's actually the longest speech in all of Genesis. Judah's going to say, 
first of all, there's no peace unless Benjamin goes back with us. If Benjamin doesn't go back, our dad is going to die, right? Benjamin must go back with us or we're not going back and our father is going to die. Judah steps in and he tells about the vow that he made to Jacob, how he would be a pledge of safety in Benjamin's place. So he says to Joseph, take me instead. I vowed to my father that I would stay in his place. Take me instead. He says, I will bear the blame and I will remain instead of the boy. The language here is is very interesting. It's the substitutionary language. The word for instead of is the same word that was used in Genesis chapter 22 when God provides the ram in place of Isaac for the sacrifice so that Abraham did not kill his son Isaac. He killed the ram instead of Isaac. So Judah here is is putting himself as a substitution a substitutionary lamb, so to speak, in place of his brother. And that language is very explicit there, making that connection. And this is the breaking point for Joseph. He'd been testing his brothers with increasing demands. He heard them confess their guilt and what they had done to him. He saw Judah here keep his promise to Jacob that he is showing more concern for his father's well-being than for his own. And this is a serious transformation in Judah's life. And he sees that his brothers are genuinely sorry for the way that they treated him. And they are willing to sacrifice themselves to protect Benjamin. This is really the heart of the test for Joseph. He wants to see, what are they going to do to Benjamin? Are they going to treat Benjamin the same way that they treated me? And when Judah steps in and says, I will take his place, you can have me instead of him. That's when Joseph knows, okay, These guys are for real. These guys have changed. We looked at last week all the times that Joseph could have revealed himself to his brothers. But he waited. He needed to be sure that they were really changed. And now is the time. They have passed the test. And now is the time for the big reveal. Again, if you're taking notes and you want to kind of follow along with this in sections, we're going to be looking at three sections here in chapter 45. God's sovereign preservation, God's covenant promises, and God's gracious provision. God's sovereign preservation, God's covenant promises, and God's gracious provision. First, we'll see God's sovereign preservation. Chapter 45, we'll read verses 1 through 8. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. 
So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father of Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Surprise, right? It's me. Can you imagine? They're terrified and they're overwhelmed. And he says, come near. Guys, really, it's me. It's Joseph. And then what he says next is unbelievable. Don't be so hard on yourselves. I mean, you try to kill me, but hey, it's okay, right? Guys, don't be so hard on yourselves. This is unbelievable, genuine forgiveness that is only made possible by the grace of God. This is a forgiveness that is, comes from grace that is a perspective giving grace. He says, God sent me before you to preserve life. It was not you who sent me here, but God. This is not something that Joseph could have said when he first went down to Egypt. This took 20 years of suffering 20 years of being accused of things he didn't do. 20 years of being partly, part of that being imprisoned, right? Being forgotten in jail after he had interpreted the dream. 20 years of walking by faith and not by sight. 20 years of trusting in God's gracious promises. 20 years of seeing God at work through his suffering. Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers was only made possible because he saw the bigger picture. He saw that it was bigger than him. He saw that it was bigger than the things that he had went through. And he says, it was not ultimately you guys who put me here in Egypt, but it was God. God put me here for his purposes, for God's glory, so that the whole world would see that God has kept them alive in order to fulfill God's promises to his people. But this doesn't get them off the hook. Here we have this dilemma, right here in the first book of the Bible. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. It's something that we've all probably wrestled with. I know as I was a brand new Christian in college, as I was reading the the Bible really for the first time and reading through Genesis, I just remember being struck at God's sovereignty, how powerful he was, how in control he was. But that can be a difficult thing to wrestle with. It can be hard to make sense of things in life, tragedies like all the children being killed by Herod. Suffering that still goes on in our world. If God is a good God and a loving God, why do bad things happen in this world? Why does suffering happen in this world? There was an article in the Minnesota Post in May of last year recalling a tornado that hit the city of Rochester, Minnesota on August 21st, 1883. 20 to 30 people were killed in the tornado About 200 people were wounded severely, and a third of the city of Rochester was completely devastated, completely leveled. There was no hospital at the time in Rochester, but there were several places that were made into makeshift hospitals while they gathered together, while they cared for those who were wounded. And there were a few doctors who lived in the town of Rochester. One of them was named William Mayo, 
and his sons, William and Charles. They got to work for, for several days treating those who were injured, binding up people's wounds. 1883. By 1889, just six years later, a hospital was built in Rochester. And by 1914, it came to be known by its current name, the Mayo Clinic. The article concludes, For many decades, Rochester residents dated events from the cyclone and headed straight for the basement whenever a storm approached. But as long as the Mayo Clinic stands, Rochester will remember their perseverance in the wake of tragedy. Perseverance in the wake of tragedy is a pretty good description of Joseph's life. How could God use the tragic events of Joseph's life for good? How and why would God cause a small southeastern Minnesota city to be leveled to the ground by a tornado? God sent Joseph before his brothers to preserve life. And he sent the tornado which led to a world-renowned facility that to this day has helped preserve many lives. And you might think, well, okay, that's, that's big Bible story, Joseph, right? That's this, you know, rare story about this city in Minnesota. What about the struggles in my own life? But what if instead of sulking in our hardships, sulking and questioning God, what if instead we thanked God for the things that we do have? What if we didn't focus on the things that we don't have and the hardships? What if we were thankful for the things that we do have? And what if we prayed and asked God to give us a different perspective in the midst of our suffering? What if, like Joseph, we could see a bigger picture? Joseph saw the bigger picture, and we see that here in verses 9 through 15. He says, Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, and there, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After this, his brothers talked with him. This is the section, God's Covenant Promises. Notice the message that Joseph tells his brothers to give to their father Jacob. Jacob, who is Israel, the father of this nation of people that God has made promises to and preserved throughout these generations. The language here is amazing to me. This really ties all of Genesis together and it points forward to the themes that we're going to see in the rest of Scripture. Themes like land 
and descendants and God's provision. Notice here it says that there are five years of famine still left. Joseph says, come down so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. One thing that we've, we've talked about several times uh, throughout Genesis and, and in the Old Testament here is there are a lot of word plays in Hebrew. There are a lot of Hebrew words that the author will use to kind of make a point and we're not always able to see it in English. But there is an incredible word play here with the word poverty. It says, come down so that you do not come to poverty. This phrase, do not come to poverty, in Hebrew is just one word. It's a negation of a word, of a, of a word that is used two times in Genesis chapter 15 when God appeared to Abraham in a vision and made promises to him. So this Hebrew word is actually translated into two different words in English in Genesis 15. And it has two different meanings. So this word poverty is the negation of those two words. In Genesis 15, God speaks to Abraham and he says, Your own son shall be your heir. And that word heir is the opposite of the word poverty. Okay, It's the same word negated. And he brought him outside, Abraham, and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. A couple verses later, he says, God says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So the word possess here is also the opposite of the word poverty. So the promise of an heir and of possession of land are the opposite of poverty. Those were the promises that God gave, land and descendants. Not coming to poverty means the land and the descendants will be fulfilled. And this reiterates what we just saw, that God sovereignly preserves and he is at work among his people. This section then ends here with them kissing and weeping and talking. God has done a marvelous work of reuniting these brothers after all these years. The stage is set. Everything is done. The last thing that needs to happen is Jacob needs to be brought down into Egypt. So we see God's gracious provision here. We'll start in verse 26, read to the, or in 16, sorry, uh, read to the end of the chapter. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours." The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. 
To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Hears about all of this, Pharaoh, the most powerful man probably in the world at the time, and he hooks Joseph's brothers up, right? He says, go get your dad, take my wagons. This is like the presidential motorcade, right? All these wagons just loaded up, probably were bodyguards and security. They had the hookup. Go get Jacob and come back. Bring him back. I'm, I'm going to give you the best of the land. And they go. And Joseph tells them, don't fight along the way. Right? Don't quarrel with each other. This is a really interesting phrase here. And I think it's probably, probably twofold. The first thing he's saying is, forget about the past. Okay? I've forgiven you. Forget about the past. Look to the future. Look to God's gracious provision and don't live in the past. But the second thing is, you guys need to have a conversation with dad. And you need to tell him what happened 20 years ago. You need to confess your sins to dad. And don't quarrel about whose fault it was. Right? Reuben, I don't want to hear you say, well, I tried to stop it. Or whatever. Don't quarrel. Go back. Bring dad down. It's all good. It's all forgiven. So they arrive back home. Jacob can't believe it, but then he sees this big motorcade. He sees all these gifts and all the things that were brought, and he cannot deny it. In verse 28, he says, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. God is sovereignly at work preserving his people fulfilling his promises and providing for their needs, all while in a foreign land during a famine. It's not the ideal circumstances for the fulfillment of promises of the God of the universe. It's not the way that we would have chosen to write the story. And the biggest reveal in human history was a story that we wouldn't have written the way that it was written either. How God sovereignly preserved his people, the royal house of David, through enemy invasions and times of spiritual famine, 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and how God was actively at work, working out the fulfillment of his covenant promises of a spiritual nation and a spiritual land for his people so that they would not come to spiritual poverty and he was graciously providing what the world needed most 
a Savior. God in human flesh. The incarnate Son of God. As we sang last week when we sang, Hark the herald angels sing. Hail the heaven born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings. Risen with healing in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. I want to repeat three of those lines. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Christmas is about us living through Jesus Christ. And being raised with Jesus Christ. The one who was nailed to the cross. Who died there for our sins. Was laid in the tomb but three days later rose again from the dead. And we will be raised. He was born to raise us. Right? And being born again by faith in Jesus Christ. Born to give them second birth. Don't miss that in this song. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what we've been looking at in these months of being in Genesis. What all these stories about all these broken people point us to. The one who came and lived and died in our place as our substitute. So that we might have eternal life with him. So as we celebrate this week, as we go our ways, as we go with family, I want those words from that song to be burned on your mind. Jesus came so that we didn't have to die. He was born as a baby so that we didn't have to die. So that we would be raised with him. And so that we would have second birth. Praise God for what he has done in giving us a Savior. And let us rejoice this week in that good news. Let's pray together. God, we stand in awe of your promises. We stand in awe of what you you did thousands of years ago through this ragtag group of brothers. How you gave us such a beautiful picture of reconciliation and forgiveness And peace with you. And your promises and your provision and your protection. God, we see those things play out in the birth of our Savior, in his life, in his death. We see them play out even today through your church. In how you call people to yourselves. How you provide for our spiritual needs. How you give us the promises of new life in Christ. As we gather together, as we celebrate week in and week out the story of the gospel. May these things be burned in our hearts and our minds. May we go out from here, whether it's family or friends or whoever we're, we're talking with this week. 
May these truths be on our lips and in our hearts. May we sing of them. May we speak of them. May we be changed by you. God, thank you for your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.